to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In February 1862, two battles took place in Tennessee that have been almost forgotten by the general public. Few people visit the sites where they took place, in part because one of them is covered by the waters of a man-made lake. Yet these battles had strategic consequences far more significant than many of the much better-known engagements of the Eastern Theater. We'll find out about them from Dr. Timothy B. Smith, author of Grant Invades Tennessee, the 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donelson, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, <coughs> coming to you. Tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, the same city as houses East Carolina University, but I'm not on campus, not speaking for the university, never speaking for the university, always just myself, and my guest always does the same thing, speaks only for him or herself on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, the Civil War talk radio uh, annex here has now moved from one room to another, as I mentioned a few shows back. We did not have a live show last week due to a technical error on the part of the staff, and since I'm the only member of the staff, that means it was my fault. Sorry about the the mix-up that prevented our guests from being here, but we're all set to go tonight. Uh, It's the... It is... uh, the last show of the academic year, the 2016-17 season, so we'll be taking a break from live shows until the end of August. Uh, in the meantime, thank you all for listening, and uh, a special thanks to the, the show's number one fan and uh, critic in the best sense, uh, my mother, who listens faithfully 
each week and tells me what I'm doing right and wrong, keeps the show improving week after week. Thanks, Mom. It's the year of 1,000 likes, as you know. We're trying to get up to 1,000 likes on the Facebook page, Impediments of War. If you haven't already gone to that page and liked it, take the time to do so. Over 920, so I think we'll get there by the end of the calendar year. My daughter, home from school, recently said, just give the word, and she could have her network of friends get us you know, hundreds of likes in, in a day or so. But I'm, I'm trying to do it with real listeners, so so keep plugging away. The uh, last show brings a time for reflection, thinking about all the books read over the past year. It means it's difficult to read other books because it's always time to read next week's book. But with last week's error, uh, I finished Dr. Smith's book and had a week to read something on my own. I started reading Nicolay and Hayes' 10-volume history of Abraham Lincoln. I need it for an, another purpose, and he'd be reading it anyway. And uh, what an interesting uh, collection. It, it, in, you can read almost a volume every other day. It's not hard reading. And in contrast to all the lost cause history that we've all seen, uh, some of it dating from the 19th century, some of it more subtle, still being written in the 20, 21st century, uh, Nicolay and Hay are crazy pro-Union writers. There's no mistaking their description of the conspiracy that brings about the illegal rebellion. They are all over. Uh, they they say everyone in our generation knows what the war was about, but people like Stevens and Davis are writing these books that will fool future historians into thinking it had something to do with states' rights uh, when everybody alive today knows what it really was. And it, it's sort of refreshing to read such strongly biased uh, pro-union history. Well, typically politics is not the topic of the show, except 1860 politics. But here's one modern political item we can all agree on, I, I would imagine. This is the budget season here in North Carolina. The legislature is coming up with uh, the next budget for the next two years. I confident we could all agree to disagree on most things in it, but there are two that uh, we have in common, uh, listeners, all listeners and I, I think, have in common. Five million dollars to Fort Fisher to finally replace their ancient and worn-out visitor center uh, and museum. I was there earlier this year. It is a uh, great staff, a great site. They have some wonderful artifacts and exhibits, but the facility is so old and, and worn out, they are in desperate need of a new one. And the legislature has finally come up with $5 million to replace the visitor center. <clears throat> I don't know how far that will go, but it's, uh, it's a start. And in other good budget news, the legislature's budget, which is not the state's budget yet, it still has to be uh, signed by the governor, and, and there may be delays there. It also includes $5 million for the North Carolina Civil War History Center, which I'm biased in favor of. I'm on the board of directors for it. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I support the project. It also has local support, county support, uh, private funding support. Still needs $30 million more to happen, 
But the $5 million buy-in by the state is a key that will free up more private donations, help people realize it's really going to happen. This was a very good uh, good day for the North Carolina Civil War History Center. Uh, so that's what's going on in the Civil War world. A uh, few more quick news items. This past Monday, June 19th, and happy Juneteenth to everyone listening. Uh, on that day, I spoke in Augusta, Georgia, at the uh, Civil War Roundtable there, where I learned on driving an I-95, by the way, when the sign says merge right, lane closed ahead, uh, don't merge till you get right up at the front. Uh, traffic engineers tell us early merging just causes delays, and sure enough, on the way home, People start merging for a sign, traffic, uh, you know, road, road work ahead, everybody merge right, and people start merging right. And I just kept going. I was that jerk. Keeps going in the open lane. I said, I'll merge when it starts getting, when I can see the construction. There was no construction. Uh, the sign was inaccurate. I just Everybody who stayed in the wrong lane just flew all the way through. So don't merge early. Uh, that's tonight's public service announcement. And do go to the Augusta Civil War Roundtable if you ever get a chance, if you're in the area. Uh, the director, Gwen Fulcher Young, runs the program with an iron hand, and she is doing something right because they've got hundreds of members. There were close to 200 people at Monday's meeting. Uh, the membership is growing. They've got nationally known speakers like Jack Davis and Bud Robertson are coming in the fall. They've got money in the bank. Uh, you have to do things her way. Uh, Gwen does not uh, tolerate uh, dissent in the ranks, uh, which I found an unusual experience uh, as a speaker. But uh, definitely, uh, it's worth it's worth going to uh, if you get a chance. And if not there, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, I'll be speaking there Thursday, uh, June twenty second. Uh, come by and, and see that if you're in that area. And keep an eye on the website and on Facebook to see who's coming on next. We've got great guests coming up in the fall. Uh, Steve Sodergren will be talking about uh, trench warfare in the Overland and Petersburg campaigns. Gary Cross, Gettysburg licensed guide, will be with us. Mark Knoll will discuss the Civil War as a theological crisis. Lots of good, interesting stories coming up. Almost the whole fall schedule is is in shape right now. We'll put that on the website over the summer. Hope you can come and uh, listen to those shows as well. Well, tonight our guest is a former National Park Service Ranger at Shiloh, uh, but now uh, has has gone on and joined the the ranks of the the doctorate. Uh, Dr. Timothy Smith is the author of the New book, Grant Invades Tennessee, the 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donaldson. He's been on the show before. Should have been on last week, but for my my slip up there. But he's here tonight and glad to have him on the show. Tim, welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you very much. Good evening. How are you doing tonight? Doing great. Doing great. You? Not bad, not bad. It, it's it's always bittersweet to come to the last show of the season, uh, but I'm glad we're finishing with a, a, a book on such an interesting topic. Henry and Donaldson, um, people have heard of it. They, they Civil War students certainly uh, heard of it, know about it. 
but I was interested to read in the beginning of your book how little has been written about these battles. Uh, why why was there room for a new book on Henry and Donaldson? Uh, what, what has been written and what's missing? Well, there are a couple of major books um, by historians that probably your listeners will have heard of. One is Benjamin Franklin Cooling, who is a mm-hmm. stalwart from way back in the 1960s. He was at Fort Donaldson. And uh, he's written several books on Tennessee and the, the history of Monocacy. He's written on Monocacy up there. And um, the other is by Kendall Gott, uh, Army officer. Uh, people have probably heard that or, or read that book as well. But there was definitely room for a new book um, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, uh, both Cooling and Gott... Um, take a, a very, I don't want to say limited approach, but a very definitive approach in terms of what they intended to do. For instance, Cooling is really interested in context, and the first, I don't know, 100 pages or so of, of his roughly 300-page book is context about the economy, the society in the area, and, and so on, and politics and, and all that, and that's good stuff. It's, it's really good stuff. But it doesn't mm-hmm. leave a whole lot of room for tactical examination, and so it's it's more contextual in nature. Uh, Gott's book is more, as you might well expect from an army officer, is interested in leadership. And I'll leave the subtitle actually. I don't I don't remember exactly what the, the wording is, but the subtitle says something about the leadership and and so on. So he's interested in the command decisions and command and control and and so on, which there again doesn't leave a whole lot of room for a a deep-down tactical examination. And so when I started this, I thought, well, I will will dig into the manuscript sources and find everything I can, every letter and diary I I can find of a soldier. And, of course, they're they're just full of of interesting anecdotal material and tidbits and and so on. And... um, and so I wanted to, number one, do a, an in-depth tactical examination of the battles. Um, and number two, I wanted to emphasize really where I think the most important blow came, and that is not necessarily where the National Park is today or where um, most people have heard of or where most people have visited and so on, and that's Fort Donaldson. But uh, in my opinion, and I, we can talk about this later if you'd like, uh, my opinion is that Fort Henry is the big blow that falls in February of 1862, not necessarily Fort Donaldson. I'm not, I'm not saying Fort Donaldson was not important. Uh, certainly it was. But Fort Henry, in a larger context, is, is light years ahead of, him, of, of Fort Donaldson in terms of, in terms of strategic importance. So for both of those reasons, there was definite room for another book. And um, I hope this one will complement what Cooling and Gott have already done, uh, not replace them by any means, but uh, but will complement it so that readers, if they're interested in leadership, they can go to one. If they're interested in context, they can go to another. If they're interested in tactical detail where Granddaddy was, uh, they can <laughs> go to mine. Well, I, I, I don't want to let you sell yourself short there's there's certainly a lot of tactical detail but there there is a, an important strategic argument and and we'll we'll take a break in a couple of minutes and come back and talk about uh the relative importance of, of the two places last time you were on the show i, I was shocked to realize it was almost 10 years ago uh 
just for the record, uh, at that time, you I think we're still working at Shiloh. Uh, I was. I was. Uh, so bring us up to date. Where have you been since? Well, I took a position at the University of Tennessee at Martin, and absolutely loving it. Um, I like the the little bit lower pace, I guess, of uh, of academic life. There's still plenty of bureaucracy, of course, but uh, <laughs> this federal government bureaucracy stuff is for the birds to tell you the mm-hmm. truth. So, um, and I understand from Park Service friends that it's only gotten worse in the ten or eleven years since I've been gone. So uh, yeah, it's a is a definite good move. Best well, not the best decision ever made. Second best decision, third best. <laughs> my wife's listening, so uh, there you go. <laughs> Salvation and Mary and Kelly are are the two best decisions, but uh, that was a that was a good one too. Well, it's, it's important to, to keep the priorities uh, in order, especially you never know who's right. listening. Well, the um, the argument about the relative importance of Forts Henry and Donaldson. Uh, just to set the scene for our listeners, uh, if well, listeners get your maps, uh, we'll take a break in uh, a minute or so. And when we do, you can go. Uh, you can go online. You can go to your bookshelf. Get out your map of the Western Theater. Uh, see how the Ohio River divides Kentucky from the uh, from the north, and how the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers flow northward into the Ohio. So if you sail up the rivers, which is south, uh, you're headed into the heart of the Confederacy, and they both uh, serve as highways that, uh, that could be very advantageous for the Union, and it's Fort Henry on the Tennessee and Fort Donaldson on the Cumberland that block those. So uh, go ahead, get the maps. We'll take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with our guest tonight, Tim Smith, author of Grant Invades Tennessee. The 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donaldson. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dr. Timothy B. Smith, author of Grant Invades Tennessee, the 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donelson. Uh, We talked a little bit in the first section about how Fort Henry, uh, which guarded the Tennessee River, uh, was in fact more significant in its fall strategically than Fort Donelson guarding the Cumberland River. So let, let's that that is a a, a bold uh, pronouncement. Tim, tell us uh, about your thinking in, in that regard. Okay, um, obviously the the preservation story has a role in this. Um, you know, we tend to think of the most important battles are the ones that we can go visit that are national parks, uh, Gettysburg and Shiloh and, and so on, and Fort Donaldson falls right in that. And then there seems to be, you know, a hierarchy that it, it doesn't always ring true in terms of importance, but, you know, state parks, uh, Fort Fisher, you just you just mentioned, um, mm-hmm. I think in the public mindset has a little bit less are of importance because it's not a national park, it's a state park, and then you get down to, to lower level, you know, city parks and county parks, and I'm not knocking any of it, there's some really good preservation uh, going on by local city folks and county folks and, and all of that. Um, but the fact that Fort Donaldson got the national park uh, back in the late 20s and early 30s uh, solidified for it, of course, uh, in terms of importance, uh, because people can go there and they can hear the story and, and all that. Meanwhile, Fort Henry's under the bottom of um, Kentucky Lake when uh, the TVA dammed up the Tennessee River in the 1930s and early 1940s. Uh, nobody that uh, wasn't of age, remembering age, in, in the early 1940s has ever seen Fort Henry and knows anything about it, you know. And so the preservation uh, story has something to do with that. Uh, but in a strategic sense, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious to me. And I'm, I'm really kind of surprised that someone hasn't necessarily, and, and there have been some that's picked up on this before, way back then. Um, but uh, but the, the comparative uh, strategic importance for Henry and Fort Donaldson are, are just, it, it's amazing to me. Now again, I'm not saying Fort Henry's or Fort Donaldson is not important. Don't don't get mm-hmm. me wrong there. Obviously, when you capture an army of fourteen, fifteen thousand troops, uh, that is is important. Uh, when you open up the gateway to Nashville and capture Nashville, uh, that is extremely important. When Ulysses S. Grant becomes a national hero, uh, unconditional surrender, Grant, that is extremely important. So Fort Fort Donaldson definitely has its its importance there. Mm-hmm. But uh, Fort Henry, when you look at the layout of those rivers, and I'm glad you asked people to get their, their maps, if you look at where the headwaters of both of those rivers are, the Cumberland River and the Tennessee River, uh, they're way over in East Tennessee, East Kentucky. Um, and they both flow initially kind of to the southwest and then, then form a big bowl 
uh, the Cumberland River in Middle Tennessee, and then it turns, of course, and flows northward into the Ohio, as you mentioned. But Tennessee has a much deeper bowl, uh, will flow down into uh, actually northern Alabama, northern Mississippi, before turning turning north. And um, it's kind of interesting. The the folks around here are rabid Tennessee fans, and I married one of them, Tennessee volunteer fans. And they hate Alabama, Alabama Crimson Tide. And they say, we don't even like for our river to flow through Alabama. But uh, it does. It takes the, the deep bowl down into, into northern Alabama. So when you open up these rivers with the capture of Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, uh, you open it up an immense amount of territory uh, simply because the Cumberland River is less deep in its curve into the heartland of the Confederacy. Uh, it has less ramification. Sure, Nashville is uh, is is part of that, and uh, you capture a, con- a Confederate army. But when you open up the Tennessee River, coming southward from the Ohio River, from Paducah, uh, once you get past Fort Henry, there is absolutely nothing between the Federal Army's Navy and the cotton states, the, the deep south cotton states of Alabama, Mississippi. And uh, and because you open up that that avenue of advance, which the Federals obviously will follow later on in March down to Pittsburgh Landing and eventually to Corinth, uh, that opens up just a huge swath of, of territory there, outflanks the Confederate bastions on the the rest of the of the Confederate defense line in the in the west, and so there's just huge huge strategic uh, parameters. There are uh, ramifications there. It, it's it, it really is interesting looking at uh, the map, and the maps in your book are excellent. They're really clear and helpful to follow. Uh, you point out when the, the battle at Fort Henry, uh, which is won by Grant's troops and uh, and by by uh, Foote's gunboats, mainly the gunboats. The, yeah, the gunboats really get there first and and shell the Confederates out of the fort, and then the troops march in and occupy it, and you point out that while that was significant in itself, that's not even the uh, that that that's only half the mission. The gunboats then continue uh, upstream south on the Tennessee River, right? And their next destination is the railroad crossing, where the the, the Memphis, Clarksville, and, and Louisville Railroad crosses the Tennessee River. Right. And again, as your your map shows, that is one of the very few east-west uh, railroads, really only two major east-west railroads in the entire Western Confederacy. Exactly. So that railroad crossing is, if the North can cut that, they've almost divided the Western theater in two. Well, certainly uh, along the Confederate defensive line there, and when I take tour groups to Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson and, and so on, I always mention that in reality, Fort Henry itself is not necessarily the the big prize. Now, it's the big mm-hmm. prize to capture to, to limit the Confederate defense, uh, but the big prize is that railroad bridge at Danville, and that's what the Federals are after. That's what Halleck is sending orders from St. Louis down. As soon as you take Fort Henry, you go on down, send Army units or Navy units down to that bridge, capture that bridge, because that is the vital link, not only for for logistics and transportation in in the Western Theater, the Upper Western Theater, the next next tier of railroads down will be the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, of course, and that runs through Corinth, which uh, becomes a uh, a vital place just a couple of months later. 
But um, even more important than that, that is the link that the Confederates are using to to combine and and keep, I guess, reinforced uh, the two major wings of their army in the West. You've got one bastion at Columbus, Kentucky, on the Mississippi River under Leonidas Polk, uh, the other under Johnston himself and Hardy at Bowling Green, Kentucky, and the link between the two uh, is the is that railroad. And the only way to get across the Tennessee River easily is that railroad bridge at Danville. So that's a major important um, area there that that the Federals are well informed of, and that's that's really their main goal. Fort Henry is just the the defense that's guarding basically that railroad bridge. Well, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was the learning about how significant that was, and then the image of the Union gunboats. Uh, cruising up the river, literally unstoppable. There's just no Confederate force that can do anything about them. All the way into Atlanta, get, Mississippi, yeah. Yeah, they, they get to Muscle Shoals, they, they get where the water's too shallow, but otherwise right. they could just keep going. In uh, fact, there was a lot of talk of the Confederacy being a hollow shell, an eggshell, that once you mm-hmm. break the perimeter, uh, break through the, the perimeter, then there's there's nothing inside. And you find that elsewhere. I'm working on some Vicksburg campaign stuff and Grierson Drake and all that. And uh, same thing, same thing going on in there. When when you get past the the initial perimeter there, there's no inward defense at all. And um, it, it illustrates some of the fault, I guess, that uh, uh, Jefferson Davis bore and and others. But mm-hmm. you, can't do the Monday morning quarterbacking. I mean, what what better options did they have? They didn't have a whole lot of options. They had too few troops and way too much territory to defend, and and uh, it's hard to hard to do any of it. There's the old military adage: "He who defends everything defends nothing." Right. And, yeah. uh, uh, you can't guard it all, and then you leave it open, and everything's vulnerable. Right. Now, when Fort Henry falls to the combined Union offensive, uh, the the gunboats and the troops on land. Now, Grant has a significant force inside Tennessee, and Fort Donelson is just a few miles to the west over on the Cumberland River. So, uh, logically, the next thing to do is to march overland uh, and attack that next fort. One of the things that I found interesting in, in your book is one of those things historians I wouldn't say we, we don't live for these moments, or things are more serious than that, but. It's fun when you come across them. Uh, everybody, every book on Donaldson or every reference in a textbook or a bigger story, when they mention Donaldson, they talk about how it's February, Union troops marching across uh, toward the fort to attack, are enjoying spring-like weather, uh, unseasonably warm days in February, and they throw away all their blankets and overcoats, and then the next day snow falls, and they're all paralyzed with cold right. uh, so you found that's maybe not quite so well uh, other historians have questioned that before and uh, I think it's probably safe to say that I've done more manuscript research in the letters and diaries of the soldiers than probably other historians have uh, heretofore mm-hmm. and, um, and I did not find a single case of any soldier saying, gee whiz, I'm hot, I'm going to throw away my overcoat because 
I don't foresee it being cold again the rest of February or March or April. <laughs> I mean, it, it just it just didn't happen. And you know, I, I put it in in our terms when you know it gets warm day. We have some warm days down here in in January and February, and you don't go put up your your heavy overcoat in the closet for the rest of the winter just because it, there's a couple of, of warm days. You know the cold weather's coming back, and you know um, you know veterans that's been in the military you get issued this stuff you're responsible for it you know if you don't if you don't keep up with it you're in trouble uh what there are instances of and there's a lot of of, of um, accounts of this is that when the units reach the battlefield of fort donaldson that they will be told to go into line of battle and you see this at other battles as well and they will they will throw off their knapsacks and they'll throw off their blankets and and there's some soldiers that talk about you know out in the middle of the woods you see a line of hundreds of of knapsacks where the you know the soldiers were given orders to to lay down their knapsacks and then march on and um, a lot of times they would leave, you know, a guard to guard their knapsacks or, or blankets or whatever. Sometimes they wouldn't. And, of course, invariably they'd be gone, you know, when they came back to, to get them or never would be allowed to, to come back and get them. So a lot of instances of that kind of stuff, but nothing of just the march over and, gee whiz, I think I'll get rid of this coat and I don't think I'll need it again until, you know, November or so. Uh, Grant, Grant is the author of that fabrication in his memoirs and uh, as good as those memoirs are there are there are a few you know problems with it here and there but um but overall really really good book but he's the one that, that first says you know soldiers threw down their coats and so on because it's odd well i think we're seeing uh, uh sort of increased critical scrutiny of Grant's memoirs in the last few years from a number of historians uh, not criticizing them as the the transcendent literature that they are but for their historical accuracy and details and here's another example so well, I you, was, all, uh, you have to take those <laughs> those post-war accounts whether it's whether it's Grant or Sherman or the smallest private in the Union Army or Confederate Army. You know, you, you, you take those post-war memoirs all with a grain of salt or, or at least check them, you know, uh, to make sure some of the, the outrageous claims are, are correct. The further, further away from the, the war they are written, the more uh, or less likely they are to, to have that kind of accuracy that we look for. So the Army... Yeah, so they march across, uh, the Union Army gets to Fort Donaldson, and in contrast to the results at Fort Henry, where the gunboats sail up, shell the Confederates out, the Union Army marches in, uh, here we see a, a land attack that's uh, repulsed, and then a, uh, a gunboat attack that is similarly driven away. What was different? Uh, it, why, why did the Confederates... Resist successfully, at least at first, oh. at Fort Donaldson. Yeah, that that's an interesting aspect of it. Um, after Fort Henry, the Confederates were just, oh me, poor me, we're not going to be able to withstand the gunboats. Those are the worst things ever invented, and and they're just going to blow us out of here just like they did Fort Henry. Um, and they weren't worried at all about the land forces. You know, who cares about the land forces because the Navy's going to going to do us in. And then all of a sudden, the the gunboats are repelled on February the 14th, and um, still nobody much thought 
you know, a whole lot about the land forces, and then they figured out, okay, that's really what's going to get us uh, if we don't do something about it, hence the breakout attempt on the, on the 15th. But uh, the difference here is that um, the, the elevation of Fort Donelson uh, and the guns at Fort Donelson is higher than Fort Henry. Fort Henry is built right at the water's edge, right very low, and as mm-hmm. a result, any firing against those sloped uh, sides of the of the gunboats was less uh, damaging than when you come from a little higher higher angle and so there's a little more uh, maybe heavy weaponry there as well um there, there are several factors but the main thing is that it's a higher elevation and uh, that allows uh, that allows the confederates to get better shots at the gunboats um at uh, admiral uh, Flag officer foot at that time, not Admiral yet. Um, also, is is pretty confident of victory, and he drove in very, very close, uh, as was per naval doctrine of the day, and uh, that didn't serve him very well. Had he stood off, do a little Monday morning quarterbacking here. Had he stood off <laughs> at a at a very far distance and just shelled the fort mercilessly, uh, I think it would have probably had a different different outcome. But he drove right in under the Confederate guns and. Even the the smaller 32-pounders that really weren't very heavy, uh, not heavy enough to do much damage at much range, uh, were able to, to do a lot of damage to those gunboats, and, and of course, they uh, they turned them back. Surprise to everyone. Now, these gunboats had some armor plating, is that right? Yes, yes. These are the uh, Pook Turtles, as they're known, the city-class ironclads. So this is early in the war, uh, before the Monitor and the Merrimack have fought their famous battle. The uh, right. Union Army slash Navy is already using gunboats on the western rivers that are protected with iron yes. plating. So that will, will affect what happens here. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back, talk about the, uh, the, the climactic battle at Fort Donelson. We're talking about the battles at Fort Henry and Donelson by the author of Grant Invades Tennessee, the 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donaldson. That's Tim Smith. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Tim Smith, author of Grant Invades Tennessee, the 1862 Battles for Forts Henry and Donelson. We've been talking about the Union's successful attack on Fort Donelson and its strategic consequences, and then the initial unsuccessful assault on Fort Donelson, uh, repelled by uh, Confederate artillery driving back the gunboats, and the Union land attack on the first day is uncoordinated. Before we go further into this, Tim, a quick sort of personal note, every year I visit with uh, college friends. We often meet uh, at the house of my friend Peter Consett in Cape Cod. Last year while I was there, I was looking at his bookshelf and there was a book called Sketches of the War, which was written by Charles C. Knott, uh, later I think Colonel of the 176th New York. And the f- inside there was a uh, handwritten note, the author uh, sending it to my friend Pete's ancestor, Lieutenant Josiah Consett, with regards from the from his former captain. And it turns out that this, this uh, author, not uh, was was at Fort Donaldson. He was detached from his regiment, but he was temporarily with the 2nd Iowa, and he describes the events sure. uh, from the Union position uh, as a uh, as an observer with this Union regiment. So I was reading it just so when I saw Pete this year, I'd be able to tell him that book you lent me last year. Yeah, I actually read it, and here's here's what I learned about your ancestor. And the next thing you know, he's the ancestor's at Fort Donaldson, and I'm, Tim, I'm reading your book at the same time. And it, the study of the Civil War draws these connections together in all kinds of unexpected ways all the time. I'm sure you experience that. Absolutely, yes. Interesting. So Fort Donaldson... Uh, holds a major Confederate garrison, not just a small garrison, but now much of the field army under uh, that Albert Sidney Johnson commands has been sent to to hold Fort Donaldson. Uh, I think you said roughly 14,000, 15,000 men. The, uh, here's, here's a simple question. Uh, who's in charge? Well, that, uh, they would have liked to know on that day in, uh, <laughs> in Fort Donaldson. Um, there, there are four... Confederate general officers inside Fort Donaldson. Uh, One sent there to be in charge is John B. Floyd, who is a politician, former governor of Virginia, and I believe he's governor, secretary of war, and under indictment in the United States, all of that. Uh, Then you have Gideon Pillow, who was a Mexican war general, friend of James K. Polk and Tennessee militia. Um, Then you've got the only really professional uh, soldier, Simon Bolivar Buckner, and then you've got Bushrod Johnson, who nobody pays any attention to and, and <laughs> doesn't doesn't really factor into, into anything. So you've got the major the major three. And um, you know, it, yeah, I used to do talks on Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, and and um, especially in dealing with the lead up to Shiloh, and I'd get questions about it and so on. And I would always joke around about the three Stooges at Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson: um, Floyd, Pilla, and and Buckner. Uh, but I tell people now I have revised my opinion 
and there's only one stooge. I believe, it's my opinion, that Buckner was was probably the most sane of any of them and had the, the firmest grip on reality. And this is debatable, of course. Many historians will disagree, and, and some have taken other stances and so on. But uh, in my opinion, Buckner had probably the firmest grasp on reality. Floyd was just absolutely way over his head. Um, you know, he, he's not very competent, but he's just, he's way over his head. And a lot of that fault uh, lies with Albert Sidney Johnson, of course, the, the theater commander. Um, and that leaves you with one stooge, of course, and that's Gideon Pillow, who I did not revise my opinion of. Um, basically, Floyd is in command, but he does not exercise that command because he has a more passive personality, and Pillow has a very strong personality and and is able to to overshadow him and dominate Floyd. And um, and so you have the, the Pillow versus Buckner uh, confrontation there, which is not it doesn't begin in February 1862. There have been some Senate races and so on where they in the 1850s that, that uh, uh, those two have gone at, at each other. So it's a it's a perfect concoction, almost a perfect storm of the lack of command and control. And, you know, one of the principles of war in the military uses is unity of command. And there is anything but on the Confederate side at Fort Donaldson. So when they're faced with Grant's arrival, they... Uh, nonetheless managed to come up with a plan uh, to to get the army out of Fort Donaldson. They realize they can't stay in the fort once Grant has uh, drawn a line from one bank of the river around the fort and then back to the bank of the river again. Now the fort would be surrounded and, and the men would, would be under siege and eventually starved out. So they, right, they make the correct they, they make the correct decision. They've got to break out. They've, they've repelled the gunboats. That's fine. But now it's time to go south, break through Grant's lines. And they, you know, so far so good. They make the right decision. They launch the attack. Grant, uh, Grant, you, you argue, is overconfident that this is, uh, that, that this is maybe not the only time we see this in Grant. He doesn't expect this Confederate breakout attack. Oh yeah, absolutely. He, you know, I'm a big Grant fan, but I don't mind calling Grant out when I think he was was wrong. And uh, for all that everybody says about his drinking and all that kind of stuff, I I don't think that. And there's a lot of over hype of that. I think the, the drinking mm-hmm. and so on. I think early in the war, his major uh, fault was overconfidence. Uh, and you look at it over and over and over in, in Belmont, you know, he thought he had the day one, and John McClernand started giving a political speech and all that, and they, they barely got out alive, you know. Then um, at, at Fort Donaldson, he, he actually admits at Fort Donaldson that I really didn't think that anything would happen. You know, he's over with he's over talking to Foote with the gunboats. Of course, Foote's wounded in the foot and can't, can't travel, so Grant goes to him, but... <laughs> Uh, when he leaves, he leaves orders for for his officers, division commanders, not to bring on an engagement. And he he admits later on that I really didn't think anything would happen and that anything would start unless I started it. And uh, how wrong he was, of course. You see it going on into Shiloh, the overconfidence mm-hmm. that you know they're not going to come attack us on open ground here. We're going to have to go to Corinth. Uh, and even in the early stages of the Vicksburg campaign, he finished a book on Grant in the Vicksburg campaign. And uh, you see a whole lot of overconfidence, uh, a little bit maybe tempered from what he had learned earlier, but a lot of letters to Julia, for instance, and so on, saying, I hope within a fortnight I'll be in Vicksburg. And this is like 
February and March of 1863, you know. I hope next week to, to have Vicksburg in my clutch, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, which is, has turned out obviously totally unrealistic. But uh, but you you see that, that overconfidence still, even even mid-war in the Vicksburg. Era. So while Grant has these flaws in his judgment that, that get him in, in tactical trouble, certainly, uh, he also has to deal with a, a group of commanders. He uh, he's subordinate to Halleck, and uh, there's there's no love lost between those two. But he works very closely with uh, uh, with, with uh, Foote. You mentioned um, right the, the the Navy officer. Yes. Uh, so so he, he he's able to overcome whatever service jealousies there are there and then form a good partnership. Right. With the Navy. Now, he's got some doozies of, a, of division commanders, this politician John A. McClernand, of course, which uh, he'll cause trouble for a couple of years. And then he's mm-hmm. got another division commander that was his commandant of cadets when he was a cadet at West Point. He, he, uh, C.F. Smith was at West Point when Grant was just a toddler. And uh, so he, he's, he's taken aback a little bit about giving this, this lofty man that everybody looks up to for decades, you know, orders. And then you've got this writer, Lou Wallace, who is, is nobody really knows what to make of him yet. And um, so you've got a concoction of some pretty interesting division commanders there that Grant has to, to meld together as well. So with that force, he's lined up his troops. He's, he's just about to uh, finish drawing the noose tight around the fort. And the Confederates launch their breakout attack and... They bend the Union line back. They break through. The road to the south is open. They do. Uh, all, all you need to do now is just, just give the word. The artillery and the wagons can get on the road, go south, and it, it would be uh, maybe not a Dunkirk, but a, a, a successful evacuation after a naval oh. victory. Sounds uh, simple, doesn't it? So what goes wrong? <laughs> Gideon Pillow, the, the stooge. Um, <laughs> Gideon Pilla orders everyone back inside the fort, and Pilla never really comes right out and says definitively, "This is why I did it." He he writes ten million words about what happened, but he never says really why he did it. Um, uh, the best supposition is, and most people conclude that uh, he was just so elated at the victory that he had won. He had driven the Union forces back a mile or two, you know, and he thought, well, the day is ours. We won, you know, we're, we're, we don't need to march out of here. We, we won the battle, you know, we won the day. And, and most likely he was thinking they're just going to march off with their tail between their legs and, and go back to Paducah. Um, he didn't take into account, obviously, who the commander was of the Union Army. That's Ulysses S. Grant, who, if, one of his faults is overconfidence and gets him into trouble on numerous occasions. One of his very good features is the adaptability and uh, the ability to recover and not give in, this, this bulldog determination. And Grant realizes very quickly when he gets back on the scene from visiting at our flag officer foot, um, he realizes what's going on and he immediately launches uh, attacks on, on all fronts and closes the, the gap again, and uh, that, of course, takes away any chance that the Confederates can march out of Fort Donaldson. So once they realize that, once they realize they are trapped, there's there's no way out, uh, 
then surrender becomes the only practical option. And uh, uh, as you noted earlier in the show, Fort Donaldson is where we uh, developed the, the legend of unconditional surrender grant. Right. Uh, talk about the, the surrender story, but, uh, how, how Grant requests the unconditional surrender and who, who surrenders to him. Well, of course, Pillow is in, in command of the Confederate mm-hmm. Army, but he's under indictment in the United States itself. And he says there's no one in the Confederacy that they'd rather have than me, so I'm not surrendering. So he, right, he, he, he mean, is that, That's Floyd, Floyd, not that's Pillow, right? John B. Floyd, yeah, hey, yeah so he yeah, gets himself right. out. Uh, Pillow is stooge enough to think that he is important enough that uh, they would want him too. Um, in fact, he tells Floyd, well, if there are two people that the United States would want, it's, it's you and me. And um, in reality, Grant later quips that um, if we had captured Floyd, we'd have given him back to you because he's much more capable, <laughs> much, much more valuable to us in your hands than he is in, in our hands as a prisoner, you know. Um, so Floyd uh, takes the command and very quickly passes it to Buckner, the third in command. And Buckner says, well, this is ridiculous. I'm going to re- I'm going to surrender with my troops. You know, I'm not I'm not going off to save myself. I'll go to prison with the troops, and he wins undying affection from, from the troops that he surrenders. Uh, and it's, it's him that, uh, of course, uh, breaks the, the ice there and requests uh, terms from Grant, and it's Grant then that responds from his headquarters to the Crisp House there uh, with the unconditional immediate surrender. Uh, there is some evidence that C.F. Smith is actually the one that came up with that wordage, though, uh, and perhaps should get some of the acclaim, but... Uh, you know, it was written under Grant's name and, and so on. So Grant, Grant became unconditional surrender Grant. So in the aftermath, uh, you know, Buckner's not too happy about this. But as you note at the opening of the book, uh, eventually Grant and, and Buckner at least reconcile. Uh, you know, say a little bit about recon- that. Yeah, I don't know if reconcile is the right word. I'm not sure that they were ever, it was really broken. Uh, Grant took a pretty terse uh, uh, stance you know, right in the middle of the correspondence and so on. But immediately thereafter, uh, Grant came to Buckner and, and said, you know, if you need any money, if you need anything, you just let me know. Because it had been Buckner, of course, the famous story that had bailed Grant out in New York City uh, earlier on, years late, years earlier. And uh, Buckner says, no, I'm, I'm well taken care of. Don't, don't worry about it. So I don't, I don't think they were you know, not speaking or, or in need of reconciliation, but certainly later in life, um, they were they were friends, and Buckner went to visit Grant immediately before his death and was actually uh, one of the pallbearers of Grant's funeral. So much well, like it, the it United is, States itself, they reconciled. It, it is a great story. It, it, it really is. It, it's one of many great stories in the book. Uh, the book is full of tactical detail. Listeners, if, if you like, uh, you know, knowing which company is on the flank of the regiment and which regiment is on the flank of the brigade and and I like that. Uh, this you'll like this book, but there's a lot more as well. Uh, great stories throughout. Uh, great strategic analysis. Really, uh, really worth reading. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed. And uh, well, well, it was a pleasure having you. And thanks to uh, the show's engineers, A Rod, and earlier in the year, Aaron. Uh, at Voice America, who made the season successful. Uh, Have a good summer to them and to you, listeners. Uh, As always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.